that, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 7 this morning for yet another remarkable account of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're in Luke 7, 11 through 17. Over the last couple of weeks, we saw the faith of the centurion as he came to Jesus seeking the healing of his beloved slave who was sick to the point of death. Then saw Jesus as he basically rescued him. Jesus drew attention to the centurion's faith in that text. That was really the main point of the text, but we can't help but realize the, the, the minor point that Jesus healed the man. He uh, snatched that servant from the jaws of death, and he did it with just a word. But that was kind of incidental to the main point of the text. Today, though, we're going to see another display of Jesus' power over death. Only this time, the man actually died. He, didn't, he wasn't just at the doors of death, at the gate of death. He passed through the jaws of death. He descended into the pit of death, into its very bowels. And Jesus reached down and snatched him and pulled him back out. That's what we're going to read. It's an incredible account of Christ's power over death itself, which really is the greatest of all human fears. So look at the text there, Luke 7, starting in verse 11. Let's read. Soon after, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the bier, and the bears stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. One of the saddest, uh, you'll have to admit, one of the saddest of all occasions is the death of a child. Whether it's, the, it's through miscarriage or through illness or sudden tragedy, there's nothing quite comparable to the sorrow of parents who, who see their precious child in pain and then watch that child die and then have to bury the little body. There's just nothing quite as heart-wrenching as that. And there's nothing as poignant as that picture of a death of a child to remind you, to remind all of us, how cruel are the consequences of sin. And to think back to that very first venturing into sin that was enticed by the murderer, Satan, and how the devil is the greatest mass murderer of all history, of all time. Murderous is his heart as he enticed all humanity to follow him into slavery to sin and slavery and fear of death. We truly groan under that curse and we grieve as we live our lives under the shadow of death. 
Philip Ryken records the experience of Robert Dabney, the Southern Presbyterian pastor who had been called home early from a preaching engagement to be with his, his young son who had fallen ill and just meet him just in time before he passed away. Dabney had to go through that experience and see the, the dismay of his wife. And he described how painful that sense of loss is, how, how impotent a parent feels at that moment at the loss of a child. This is what he says, just quoting from Dabney. I've learned rapidly in the school of anguish this week and am many years older than I, than I was a few days ago. It was not so much that I could not give my darling up, but that I saw him suffer such pangs and then fall under the grasp of the cruel destroyer while I was impotent for his help. Ah, when the mighty wings of the angel of death nestle over your heart's treasures and his black shadow broods over your home, it shakes the heart with a shuddering terror and a horror of great darkness. To see my dear little one ravaged, crushed, and destroyed, turning his beautiful liquid eyes to me and his weeping mother for help after his gentle voice could no longer be heard, and to feel myself as helpless to give any aid, this tears my heart with anguish. Maybe some of you who know that loss, that pain. And I've got to imagine that the villagers who lived in Nain felt some of that kind of sadness. And for one of the villagers in particular, the young man's mother, a widow, she felt the loss most profoundly, most acutely. Because of everyone present that day, she would leave the funeral bereft. Without her son, she would return home alone and then figure out what the new normal looks like in a bleak and very uncertain future. And yet, as sad as this situation is, filled with pathos there in the text, we can see in this account, we need to put this into perspective that her sadness was all according to the perfect plan of a sovereign God. That's the first point in your outline, the perfect plan of the sovereign God. We need to put our grief, our joys, our sorrows, our happiness, our sadnesses, we need to put all of that into perspective that God is always on the throne. He doesn't step off for one moment. He is always executing His perfect plan and his perfect plan does involve even tragedies like this. Look at the situation again. As the crowd following Jesus, they meet up with this very sad funeral procession. It's in verse 11. It says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Let's stop there for a second. He, he soon afterward went to Nain. That is, soon afterward, that is, he he, he did this immediately after healing the centurion's slave. After rescuing him from a certain death, Jesus went to Nain. Okay? Understand, we're talking about the perfect plan of a sovereign God. You need to see those elements in here. Okay? We'll talk about that. Let's talk about Nain, first of all. Where is that? More importantly, Nain. Why Nain? <laughs> it doesn't make 
from a Jewish perspective in the first century, Nain doesn't matter at all. It's a small, insignificant, nothing, town, village. It's located just across the Jezreel Valley from Nazareth, which was really another small and insignificant village. It just happens to be where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Nain sits on the north-facing slope of the Hill of Mora, uh, also known as Little Hermon. Nain is sort of nestled into the base of what's a, basically a small 1,600-foot hill, and it overlooks the Valley of Jezreel to the north. The villagers of Nain could look across the Valley of Jezreel to the Nazareth Hills, just about seven miles to the north and slightly to the west. So the word Nain... The, tame, the, the name of the town supposedly means lovely, uh, perhaps got the name from the reference to green pastures, also a possible meaning of that word Nain. Villagers supported themselves, as many did in small villages like that, through agriculture and shepherding and pasturing herds and flocks. But then whenever caravans passed through on the Via Maris, going from places as far as Mesopotamia in the east and north and then going down as far as Egypt, the villagers of Nain and those towns along the Jezreel Valley were ready to trade with the caravans, to buy and sell, to bring them to the gate of Nain and administer hospitality for money uh, and trade. So Jesus wants to go to this town, to Nain, a little insignificant blip on the map, not even a speed bump on the way from Mesopotamia to Egypt. Why? Why did he want to go to Nain? What was significant about it? It was a part of his mission. To put it simply, it was just part of his mission. He's here following a divine plan. He's pursuing a divine purpose. Luke 4.43 says, he says this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That comes immediately on the heels of him doing miraculous things, amazing teaching there in Capernaum. He could have stayed there. He could have built a worldwide international empire ministry. Television broadcast and everything. But he said, no, I must leave. I must go. I was sent for this purpose. And that put Nain on the itinerary. He didn't go to Nain for its importance. There's nothing important about it. He didn't go there because of its significance. Not, certainly not because of its affluence. It was simply one of the other towns and one he had yet to visit. It's significant in this aspect. There were people there. There were people there. And they needed to hear the good news. They needed to understand this visitation of God's mercy and God's grace. That made it significant. That put it on, his, on the itinerary. And so Jesus went to Nain. And it says he went to Nain soon afterward. That's how the ESV and a number of translations render the Greek preposition entohexes. Literally, though, that preposition means the next day. The next day. And the phrase is exclusive to Luke. And he uses it all through his writing to mean the next day in Luke 9:37 in Luke 25:17 Acts 27:18 it's the next day and here again it's this next day as in the day after healing the centurion's slave so why is that important what's so significant about that again it tells us 
that as Jesus, as interested as he was in the centurion's faith and in highlighting that for his disciples and the crowd following him, he's not interested in sticking around. You might think he'd spend time with the centurion, allow his disciples to to deepen the friendship. In fact, if we think in just pragmatic terms, it might be a really good idea for for the founding members of the church of Jesus Christ to get to know a Roman centurion. He might be able to grease the skids of some political problems they might face in the future and make an acquaintance like that might, uh, might be really good for his ministry. Get Rome on board. Not for him. He's moving on. Why? Because not only is Jesus following a divine plan, not only is he pursuing a divine purpose, he's on a divine timetable too. Any further delay would have made him late for a funeral. He's got somewhere to be. So he headed from Capernaum to Nain, about 25 miles, a day's journey. Probably meant about 10 hours of walking. He's got a huge entourage with him. His disciples went with him. This includes the 12 and all those who followed him as teacher, rabbi. There's also this, this great crowd that went with him, the ones who... Back in 6.17, we keep pointing back to them. They arrived from all Judea and Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. We can imagine the people from Tyre and Sidon as Jesus leaves Capernaum to go south. It may be that they wanted to head home after that, but it's not hard to imagine that the crowds from Judea and Jerusalem accompanying Jesus here, they were fine with going south to follow him and accompany him south. It's kind of on their way home. We can connect that with what we read at the end of the account in verse 17 that the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So you can see how the folks from Luke 6.17 are the folks in, also in Luke 7.17, and they spread the report. A lot had happened between Luke 6.17 and Luke 7.17. They had a lot to talk about. So as this massive crowd is with Jesus... As they're following him from Capernaum to Nain, you can imagine how excited they were as they're walking down the road. You might think 10 hours of, of walking from Capernaum to Nain, that would exhaust me. We are wimps compared to first century people. They walked everywhere, and they built up a, a tolerance for walking and an appreciation for it. We might want to try it too. Um, but this, uh, this massive crowd, they're with Jesus. They are excited based on what he's been teaching, based on what they have seen him do and accomplish, those conversations. I would have loved to have been in that crowd, wouldn't you? To just, just to discuss and to talk and to get further clarification, to follow up conversations that were filled with messianic hope and talking about the current political situation. And wonderful to overthrow Rome finally, Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? And maybe throw in our own ideas as well. Discussions about the law, the prophets, all the messianic fulfillment. They're excited, coming around the bend, and they head into the tiny little village of Nain, and they arrive at what seems to be probably the most inopportune moment. A funeral procession, just leaving through the town gate. It says in verse 12 there, you can see it, as Jesus drew near to the town gate, and then it says the word, Behold, behold. Luke is trying to bring us, the reader, into the scene. Behold, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The gate where they departed from, 
It's where the elders of the town would have gathered to meet, deliberate, deliver judgment on cases. The gate was where people of the town gathered, whether on festive occasions or whether they just were coming to the marketplace to do their own buying and trading, maybe to trade with caravans passing through the Jezreel Valley. The gate, it's usually a very pleasant place to be. Not this time. Not now. When Jesus in his excited, joyful entourage arrived, it would have been evening. It should have been about the time when the town closed the gate, settled in for the night, and posted sentries for the night watch. But it says there in verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A considerable crowd from the town was with her. About a 10-minute walk. They would have been making from Nain, heading west or, or east, I should say, toward Endor. There's a burying place there. And there are tombs cut into the rock. It's a burial ground for the village, and it's still used by Muslim villagers today. And Jesus, in this massive crowd of weary travelers, they descended on this little town of Nain, and they're tired, happy, contented, but weary, and under the best of circumstances, this massive crowd would have, would have overwhelmed the town with numbers, stretched their resources, but it's not the best of circumstances. It's the very worst, and the crowd is leaving Nain in a somber state of mourning. There is such a stark contrast here between these two groups of people who are meeting at the gate. Death had just happened. Probably that day, maybe, maybe happened the previous evening, but it had just happened. And the timing here is amazing. This is providence at work. This is where we see, back to our point, the perfect plan of a sovereign God. A God who orders all things according to the counsel of his own will. And that includes perfect timing. Perfect timing. While Jesus is healing the centurion slave, Another young man, this young man, was dying. And then he died. And that was his perfect timing. We just saw Jesus' power to save the centurion's slave. And so we know that Jesus had the power to prevent the death of this young man as well. If only he could have been there. Martha said the same thing to Jesus, didn't she? When, she, when her brother Lazarus died, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both the centurion's slave and the widow's son, both are needed. Both are precious. Both of them beloved. Both of them useful. One recovered. The other died. But both situations, both of them were working out according to the perfect plan and purpose and timing of God. We need to remember that, don't we? As I couldn't find my keys this morning, I need to remember that. Perfect timing, perfect plan. God is in control. No need to get upset. No need to worry. The previous night or that morning, whenever it was that the young man died, his death set funeral preparations in motion and they happened immediately. The warm climate of that area necessitated the preparation of the body and then a burial soon afterward. And just a footnote on that, 
no one, no one in that day buried a body unless death was certain. And first century people were really experts in death. They could tell. They didn't make mistakes. Absent modern medicine, death was very common. And absent modern sympathies, or sensitivities, I should say, death was not something that was tucked back into private places that you never looked at. It was seen. It was known. So they had to prepare the body. They had to get ready for a funeral and a funeral procession. All this happened, happened quickly, and it happened in public. Before they engaged in funeral preparations, they made sure that the person actually had passed away. They looked for all the typical signs. They looked for airway, breathing, circulation, all of that. Once pronounced dead, they set preparations in motion. And the burial customs of first century Palestine kind of went something like this. First of all, family and friends just immediately tore their robes. They signaled to everybody something mournful, something bad, as tragic has just happened. That's a universally recognized sign of mourning. They closed the eyes of the dead person, so everyone who entered the room would know that the one who is not moving and not grieving and not with the tor torn clothing, lying in the midst of all that noise, with the eyes closed, that's the dead person. The soul had departed, and the body is now a corpse. Second thing, friends of the family. They would come, wash down and anoint the body, and then dress the body either in its own clothes or wrap the body in burial cloth, perhaps even wrap it in spices and things that would suppress any smell. The body was then placed on a funeral bier. It wasn't like a closed coffin like we use, but uh, uh, like a modern casket, but it was like a plank of wood or more likely uh, a woven wicker mat that was sturdy, like a stretcher maybe, but it was sturdy but light, much easier for pallbearers to carry. And so, though the body was covered and wrapped, the funeral bier was open and the body was visible for everybody to see. Thirdly, as soon as the body was ready, you want to wait too long. Time is ticking on the natural process of decay, and so... They formed, the men formed a burial detail, and the women formed the funeral procession. According to one source, in Galilee, it was customary for men to walk in front of the deceased, and then women to walk behind in the procession, with hired mourners and musicians, with instruments processing, in, instruments playing according to their respective genders. So the mus musicians, they would use things that they had on hand, flutes, cymbals, all of that, but as they played, they didn't play anything that was beautiful, melodious, but rather they'd play things that were dis discordant sounds, not at all pleasant. Women would be following along and women wailing, making a scene, providing loud expressions of the deepest grief. You might say, boy, that sounds awful. No, not for them. They, they saw that as a way to honor the dead. The more wailing, the more important this person was. They showed respect and sympathy for the family that way by grieving along with them. Rabbinical instruction was, was clear that even the poorest in Israel should hire not less than two flutes and one wailing woman. Unlike our modern tendency, like I said, to keep death out of sight and private and hidden, first century folks didn't think that way. They made the procession and the funeral loud and dramatic there was a public display of mourning over death intended to show 
sympathy, but also a sign of respect for a family who just lost a loved one and was grieving in tragedy. I think it had to be also instructive for raising children, don't you think? To see people die and to know that our life is not forever, that our youth is not forever. One day we will, too, be buried. So with everything arranged, bodies prepared, funeral procession was all arranged, the pallbearers hoisted the platform, the funeral beer, and the procession organized around them, and they all headed out to the burial place. And this is what Jesus and his entourage encountered when they came near to the gate of Nain. They could tell the dead man was popular, that he was well-liked in the town. Luke notes here that a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And so these villagers are carrying a beloved son of Nain. And to one of those villagers in particular, the dead man was a most beloved son. Jesus and his crowd could also discern, verse 12, the, man, the dead man was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. How could they discern that? How could they tell? Just by looking. That this is a widow, that she lost her only son. Well, because of the way the funeral procession was ordered. As they came closer, they could see the, the men in front, the dead man on the funeral bier, and then also the women behind, and except for one woman. One woman is there in front of the procession, in front of the funeral bier, between the men and the pallbearers. One woman, all alone. Typically, walking in front of, uh, in front of the uh, bier and the pallbearers and behind the men of the town, family members would be walking directly in front there. They, that would be their place. And the physical proximity was a visible testimony of their own status as family members they wanted to be near, but in this case, there's just one member of the family, an older woman, the young man's mother. And Jesus discerned, she's a widow. The text says about her son that this is her, her one and only son, and the, and the word is monogenes. Same word, by the way, that's used to describe Jesus as the monogenes, the one and only son of God. This woman had no other children. That's what the word's meant to show. She'd already lost her husband, and now she's losing her only son in the prime of his life. And this poor woman is utterly bereft, probably left destitute. We're obviously not told, but it's likely that the father died shortly after the son's birth. Otherwise, they would have had more children together. And this woman had probably been a single mother for a long time, eking out a living, receiving charity from others until that boy grew old enough to have the strength to go out and earn, bring home a living for the two of them. So along with the loss of her only son, along with the relational loneliness that she had to look forward to in her future here, she's also struggling here with feelings of, of fear and anxiety. One described her situation this way, that she's been reduced to a condition of, here's the term, dire vulnerability. That's a widow. Dire vulnerability. As a woman, this widow, walked along with a funeral procession, listening to the sounds of mourning, 
This whole thing she's swept into, she has to feel like she's probably not even, she's like floating. She's not even feeling herself, really. She's just there walking along, listening to all this, the, the wailing, tambourines, cymbals, flute players. And in addition to her profound sorrow and grief and tears, questions had to be flooding her mind like, where will my food come from? Who's going to provide for me? Who's going to protect me in my old age? Who will bury me? And at just the moment, she's asking these kinds of questions. At the point of her deepest grief, the widow looks up and she sees this massive crowd coming toward her. Though she doesn't know it yet, God was sending to her His one and only Son, that believing in Him, she might not perish but have everlasting life. William Cooper, the 18th century Calvinist poet, wrote a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's a wonderful hymn, humanly honest, theologically sound, lyrically it's beautiful. One line says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. That's what we're seeing here in the text. The perfect plan of the sovereign God who loves this woman, who loves this little town of Nain. He sent His monogenes, His one and only Son, that they might never fear death again. Look, I don't know what any of you, many of you may be facing, but listen, you've got to let this account encourage you to trust God, no matter what, especially in the darkest of times, especially when things hurt. Our God never sleeps. Our God never slumbers. His perfect providence works in invisible ways when you don't know about it to accomplish His perfect will. And for those who belong to Him who are in Christ, behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face always. God is always working for His glory, which always results in what is good for us too. And now when we come to funerals as believers, we don't come with abject sorrow and grief, but a grief that's mixed with joy and hope. That's what we see here next. This is why God sent Jesus to Nain, which is, you'll see in point two in your outline, the perfect power of the tender-hearted Lord. The perfect power of the tender-hearted Lord. The next verse in William Cooper's hymn continues the theme. It goes like this. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Again, calling us to trust. This widow had tasted the bitter bud of death, but she would soon see a flower of life growing. It's growing by the life-giving word and command of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. I want to stop there for a second. 
Luke has introduced into his narration a title here, Lord. And that's significant. The word Lord, it's the word kurios. It occurs more than a hundred times in Luke's gospel, but this is the first time that Luke has used it in his own narration of one of these accounts. Most of the time, he's been referring to Jesus by his name as Jesus. And then he uses pronouns, he, him, and all of that. Most of the time, I mean, you can see even in our chapter, it's Jesus in verse 3. It's Jesus in verse 4 of chapter 7. Jesus in verse 6. Jesus in verse 9. And that's all Luke narrating the text. He's referring to the Savior using his first name of Jesus. But then in verse 13, for the first time, as I said, Luke refers to him as Lord. And that's going to continue throughout the rest of his gospel. Luke 7:19, Luke 10:1:39 and 41, Luke 11:39, Luke 12:42, Luke 13:15, in Luke uh, chapters 16, 17, 18, 19, 22 and 24. Uh, you got all that down? Good. I'll write it just down very quickly. Um, but this the, he he uses this term over and over and over again. But he starts narrating calling him Lord here. When he raises the dead The other synoptic writers, Matthew and Mark, they present Jesus as Lord very, very clearly. They don't refer to him as Lord in their narration, though. But by contrast, Luke's gospel is replete with his own personal affirmation in the text that he sees, the writer sees, Jesus is Lord. He adds his own testimony in the narration. Even there in verse 15, the word Jesus there, that's not in the text The ESV translators just inserted it there for clarity. But Luke wants us to see that the only thing he refers to Jesus here is as Lord. It's a theme he's been developing all along. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Lord. Luke 3, 4. In Luke 5, 8, Peter fell on his knees after that miraculous catch of fish and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The leprous man in Luke 5.12, he begged Jesus saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And then we read in this chapter, verse 6, the centurion also, he said, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I am not worthy. Lord, 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 Lord. And now Luke adds his own affirmation here. And notice what the Lord does. As an exercise of his lordship, He commands the widow. He commands her. This is an imperative in the text. He's tender. He's kind. And yet this is an imperative of prohibition. We have the advantage here as the readers of Luke's hindsight to see the source of this command, the motivation behind Jesus' imperative. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. So it's from a heart of compassion that Jesus commands, the Lord commands her to stop weeping. She's been weeping probably for hours, as is only natural. She may even be out of tears. Here she comes and the Lord commands her to stop. Why does he do that? She's got every reason to weep. She's got no reason not to weep. She's never met him. She has no reason to trust him, no experience of his power and authority. 
So what is this? Jesus commands her, before performing the miracle, for the same reason that he commands us to believe, even before he acts. He intends to teach us, to train us, that we should obey him in faith, to trust his good character. He wants us to trust that before he shows us that. He intends for us to obey him, not seeing first and then doing what he says, but obeying without seeing, knowing that he will always do what is best, always do what is right. And as I said, we have the advantage over the widow in this account because here we are reading it. We read and we have advantage over the widow and the townspeople. We read the account. We see the heart of our Lord, which is a heart of compassion before we read how the Lord commanded the widow and before he performed the miracle. We know what's coming. The emphasis here, as I said, is on Jesus' lordship. It's a theological emphasis. And we see how the theology is so eminently practical here, so immediately applicable, so profoundly even devotional for us so that we come out of this in worship. Why did the Lord command her here to stop? Because he felt compassion for her. He was stirred by her grief. He was moved by her sorrow. He knew what he was going to do. He's moved. He's stirred. He deeply felt her sadness and sorrow. He's the same today, isn't he? Isaiah 53 tells us that he was a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He took them right up to the cross. He suffered for our sins. He died for them. Died for all that makes us sorrow and grieve. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So a little preview of his power to overcome sin and death little insight here on how he could bear our iniquity, how the sacrifice of his life could satisfy the wrath of a holy God to bring us peace and healing. The Lord provides here a demonstration of his divine power. Look at verses 14 and 15. He came up and touched the bear, and the bears stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, if you ever plan to interrupt a funeral, that's about the only way that you can do that and come away without a scratch, remove the cause for the funeral, and you'll be okay. Short of that, it's considered pretty impolite to interrupt a funeral. To walk in and stop the pallbearers and the procession, it's considered bad form and all that. I don't recommend you do it. But Jesus, different story. He approached this procession while it's in motion. Villagers of Nain are passing by. And as the widow walked by, Jesus spoke directly to her and told her, do not weep. That had to seem strange to those who heard it, but even stranger was when he passed her by, walked up to the funeral by, reached out his hand, 
and touched it. That is something you just do not do. And even worse, he touched the beer not just as a touch, but he intended to stop it. It's an action that's not going to be well received. But in this case, at his touch, with the assertion of his will, these pallbearers stopped dead in their tracks. The actions actually happened in a very short succession. Commanding the widow, touching the beer, they would have seemed not only strange, but offensive and downright disrespectful. But any of those thoughts that may have been forming in their head, along with a, an action to follow next about what to do about this kind of an interruption, would vanish in a moment because of what he did next. The Lord spoke to the young man. He didn't touch him. He spoke to him. With the voice of command, young man, I say to you, arise. The words to you are in an emphatic position in the original. To you. They show the direction of the Lord's command. He had already just commanded the widow, and then he turns to the young man and says, I say to you, arise. He addresses the young man. It's clear indication here of divine authority, of omnipotent power, and the prerogative to use that power. Jesus is Lord. He is the kind of Lord, in fact, who commands even the dead to rise and get this, the dead obey his voice. It's going to happen again in Luke 8.54 when Jairus' dead daughter obeys his voice and gets up out of bed. It's going to happen again in Bethany, John 11.43, when Lazarus obeys his voice, walks out of the tomb in his grave clothes. By the way, we don't see any faith exercised here to prompt a miracle. There's no cooperation on any part of any human being. He's not giving this command in response to the widow's faith, the dead man's faith, the faith of anyone in the crowd. And again, back to the providential timing. They didn't arrive at Nain, mix in with the crowd so everybody could kind of get to know him. And oh, by the way, we've got a funeral. You want to join us? No, let me raise the dead man. No. It's all a connection. It's all an immediate acquaintance. And Jesus shows power over death. Without any faith exercise, without any knowledge of who he is, he raises the dead. This is showing divine initiative here. This is showing the exercise of divine power. This shows that Jesus has, as Lord, he has the prerogative to exercise that initiative, that power to satisfy the demands of, not man, but God. The compassion to glorify God, showing mercy to sad and needy sinners. The whole scene you need to understand, theologically, the whole scene is a crystal clear picture of spiritual regeneration. This is a picture of being born again. Of his own sovereign will and initiative, Jesus commands the dead to live. They don't exercise their own faith first. They must be made alive first, enabled to hear the voice of command, and to respond in obedience to his gracious command. That is what happens every time a sinner comes to faith in Christ. It's illustrated right here as Jesus commands the dead to live. This is a picture of spiritual regeneration. What's the evidence of the miracle? Very clear. Verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to speak. And I think I know what he said. How in the world did I? What just happened? Something like that, probably. 
had to be pretty strange feeling to wake up wrapped in grave clothes heading to your resting place, you know, a hole in the ground. But think about that. The evidence there that Luke includes. To sit up, the man had to have his blood circulation restored. I mean, I'm no doctor, but I think you have to have circulation in order for the contraction of muscles, flexion, and extension. A moving body requires blood to flow, doesn't it? Blood's got to be circulating. A beating heart, functioning systems need to be there. And then to speak. The man had to have his airway and breathing restored. Diaphragm contracting and relaxing. A nervous system that controls the autonomic actions and functions of the body. Lungs working, sending the air into the blood. All that science, all that chemistry happening now in a man restored Think beyond that. The miracle went way beyond mere physiology. Speaking, getting up and speaking, that may happen by means of the body speaking, but communication, that's a function not of the body, but of the spirit, of the soul, the immaterial part of man. So in order for this miracle to be complete, it required not just material restoration, which is the return of physical life, This material required immaterial restoration as well, which is the restoration of spiritual life. This miracle required the return of the man's soul to his body. So not only does Jesus have the power to command material things, he commands souls that have departed to return. What kind of power this Lord has Notice what started in verse 13 with Jesus' compassion. It ends in verse 15 with Jesus' compassion. Jesus gave him to his mother. The central focus of Jesus' concern in the entire narrative has been the plight of the widow. Surrounded by crowds, surrounded by the entourage that followed him, the crowd of villagers from Nain, Jesus has his eye fixed on one person, the widow. You can see it in verse 13 with the emphasis in the repetition of feminine pronouns. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her. And now, having restored life to the dead man, he's still focused on the widow. Jesus returned the young man to her. So tenderhearted. As the author of this man's life, both his first and his second life, the Lord possesses, you could say, the uncontested right of ownership over this man's life. I mean, who's going to dispute that? But then, according to the same authority and prerogative that he exercised in the power to raise him from the dead, to create him first, and then to raise him from the dead, really, Jesus used that same authority and power to deliver the man back to his mother. Compassion is driving him from start to finish, exercised in perfect harmony with the plan, purpose, and timing of God's sovereign will. That is the perfect power of our tender-hearted Lord on full display. And beloved, I realize that Jesus doesn't exercise his compassion in exactly the same way all the time. In fact, this is unique. This is something that doesn't happen all the time. We might 
think that we would like him to show compassion to us and resuscitate our dead loved ones and bring them back to us. But even if we don't see that kind of miraculous power unleashed now, can you see and read in this account and know that Christ still has that same compassion for you, for your situation, for you and your loved ones? Can you trust Him? Can you remain steadfast in believing just by returning to this account time and again, even when things seem for you dark and sorrowful? His purposes, not might, but will, ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Your believing loved ones who have died in the Lord, I can promise you, they do not want to come back. They are blessedly content in the presence of the risen Christ. They wouldn't be too happy with you if God responded to your desires to bring them back to you and relieve you of your sorrow. In fact, they'd probably give you a bit of a loving rebuke. I was doing just fine. Thank you. And they would want to direct your eyes in faith to the one to whom you should believe and trust and find all your soul's succor and joy and hope fulfilled. They'd want you to look at Christ. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus came not to merely resuscitate dead bodies, that are going to die again. He came ultimately to conquer death itself. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus took on flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Amen. Our loved ones who are no longer here, who are now with Christ, they would tell us to look up, not down. To look up, not look around. They'd tell us to trust the one who is the resurrection and the life. An hour is coming when, John 5, 28 and 29, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. There, all means all. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He will gather his sheep to his side and shepherd them into their eternal reward. The goats he'll judge. And Revelation 17, or 7.17 assures us that the Lamb of God, as believers, he is our shepherd. And he guides us to springs of living water. And then it says there in Revelation 7.17 that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Do you believe that? We've seen the perfect plan of the sovereign God that brings the perfect power of the tender-hearted Lord to the aid of a grieving widow. Now we're going to see the public reaction to all this. Final point, we might call this the almost perfect response of the awestruck crowd. Almost perfect response. And I'm just going to introduce this now and save the rest for next time. But for now, let's look at the crowd's reaction to this dramatic display of, of an unparalleled power and authority. Verses 16 and 17 it says, Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So they're gripped with fear. Phobos, fear, 
And the verb is very aggressive. It took hold of them. It seized them. And that is certainly an appropriate and completely understandable response. They had never seen this kind of power. Power over the material and the immaterial world. The Lord in action. And whenever people face this kind of otherworldly power, they just have no category for it. Such close proximity to the holiness of God in Christ and His incredible power, it, invoke, it evokes here a reaction of fear, and that is appropriate. That's what you see all through Scripture. But then you see their immediate way that they sum, sum up and their summation of the, the significance of what they have just witnessed. They say, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Both things. Is that an accurate conclusion? Well, it's good, right? But it's not good enough. And that's why I say it's an almost perfect response. God had visited his people, but he didn't simply send a great prophet. He sent his monogenes. He sent his one and only son. And in other words, this is not simply a prophet of the Lord. As Luke put it, this is the Lord. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. So they've underestimated him. They've come to a conclusion that's just too short of the reality. And look, as, as, as kindly as you may mean it, if you underestimate and call him by any other name than the absolute Lord of heaven, it's not a compliment. It's actually an insult. Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3. And he said, you know, we've seen your miracles. We've seen all this stuff you're doing. We realize that no one could do the things that you do unless God had sent him. We know what we see in you. You are a prophet. You're certainly a teacher sent from God, is what Nicodemus said. And he means it not as a, an insult. He means it as a compliment. No, Nicodemus didn't actually compliment him. The Lord was gracious with him. The Lord is gracious with these people, but they've underestimated him. By God's wonderful providence, though, here, he planned for a joyful, triumphant procession following Christ to collide with a tragic funeral procession. It brings us back to Luke 1, to a people who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. He sent a great light to guide their feet into the way of peace. He showed them the way that they should go to follow the one with the power of life that not only resuscitates the dead, but conquered death itself and overcame the grave himself. That's what we're meant to see here. The tender mercy of our God, which visited this sad scene, this sorrowful widow in this little village of Nain. He brought a, a perfect end to the most tragic day of her life, and he turned it into a day of joyful salvation. The Lord who raised the widow's son, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here, he's your omnipotent Savior as well. He's gone way beyond resuscitating dead bodies, far better, eternally better. God has in Christ secured your eternal reward. Resurrection from the dead, starting with Jesus Christ whom we follow 
and including all who believe. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The one procession is completely overcome by the other, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom, the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, including this account in Scripture that we might read and rejoice and trust you, that we might see your almighty power in Jesus Christ driven by your great compassion for sinners. We thank you for what you did for the widow at Nain. We thank you for what you've done for all of us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.